Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 18 through 31. It's found in your church Bibles on page 901. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Please be seated. Lord, the truth is we are in no different a situation than the disciples in the upper room. You have the words of eternal life. To who else should we go? And you tell us you can do nothing apart from me. Lord, would you help us? Help us now, Lord, as we listen to you. Help us, Lord, not just simply to hear a sermon or to hear one person speaking, but to hear you speaking, convicting and leading and encouraging and stirring. Lord, inspiring us to follow you more closely and to hope in you more fully. In Christ's name, amen. We're continuing to examine, as we will all summer, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? As we saw last week, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the three persons who make up the being of God. He is, as we saw, the Lord, the giver of life. And here in John 14, as you just heard Renee read, he is the Lord, the promised helper. We're going to deal with this topic under four headings, which trace really the trajectory of this passage from a little further back than Renee read, from verse 15 uh, onwards, and straying also into John 16. So if you have at least a uh, finger in John 16 and have the Bible open to John 14, even if it's on your phone, that uh, would be helpful. So as we come here to this passage, to the Lord, the promised helper, who do we encounter? Who is shown to us? Well, look, first of all, at this point, this header, another 
help us. Someone wrote me an email last week, and in the title, instead of writing as they meant to, hello, Steve, they wrote, help, Steve, which immediately got my attention. I think there's something which is interesting about that for, for Western people. I have to say, probably most of all Western men, it's difficult for us to say that word, almost as difficult as it is to say the other five-letter word, sorry, <laughs> is the word help, right? That moment when your wife nudges you and says, ask them for directions, you don't know where you're going. And there is something in us that refuses, that stresses against it. But it's the right way to talk to God, isn't it? Hello, God. Help. And so Jesus said, I will ask the Father that he will give you another helper. The word another intrigues me because it reminds me of our study in Genesis last week, in Genesis 1 and 2, that Adam was shown there in verse 18, that he needed a helper. And I wondered, as I first came to this, there's no doubt it's occurred to you, whether the reference here isn't much, much older to perhaps Eve, to the original helper, because the fact remains we were not meant to be alone. And maybe there's something of that echo there, certainly the truth that we were not designed to be alone. But four times in John, Jesus describes this coming helper, you'll notice, by using a Greek word, which means literally, parakletos, a called alongside one. A called alongside one. The word is translated differently in different versions. Helper here, counselor in others, comforter in the King James, defender, advocate. And the truth remains, if you were looking for legal help from an attorney, in ancient Israel, you wouldn't go to some shiny office building downtown. You would go to your friend and beg him, will you be my advocate? Will you be my helper? Will you be my defender? Will you be the one who will be at my side advocating for me? And that's much of the idea here of this helper. And that's the way that John has begun his gospel, by telling us that we have been given such a helper John 1, 18, the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And this is the picture in John's Gospel that from the Father's side, Jesus has been sent by the Father to be at our side, at the side of the apostles and of the church. And they're being drawn away again, back again to the Father. He has left in his stead the Holy Spirit. So these words, another helper, shouldn't confuse us. The first helper, we have good reason to believe, <coughs> is the Lord himself. And this other helper, the Holy Spirit, he will now be our parakletos, the one who will be alongside us. And he will be alongside us forever. John 14, 16. So, in what way, then, will the Spirit be our helper? When we use the word help, we don't mean to give the idea that God is in an assisting role, like those quite dreadful bumper stickers that you will say, theologically dreadful anyway, that say, God is my co-pilot. God should not be our co-pilot or we're in big trouble. God is our pilot. I've never done this, but if you've ever been skydiving, 
I imagine the moment comes after you've uh, gotten off the ground where perhaps astonished at your own bravery, you might tell people, I just jumped out of an airplane. Wow, people will say, as you tell them later, did you do that alone? To which then you should humbly admit, well, no, there was this large dude strapped to my back. I love uh, the reassurance of the skydiving brochures. I was uh, reading one which reads, the tandem skydive is a skydiving experience where two people jump out of an airplane together, strapped to one another during the entire descent. <laughs> I wonder if they'd gotten any number of questions saying, so will the guy be with me all the way down? <laughs> Here is the assurance to us, the Holy Spirit will be our helper during the entire descent, we are not designed to make this a solo voyage. He will be with us forever. Thanks be to God. Second, the second header here, the spirit of truth. You can see it there in verses 17a. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, even the spirit of truth. Literally here in in the original language, the spirit who is truth. One of the interesting things about this passage and the way that Jesus speaks is there's a, there isn't a confusion, but there is a, a, a kind of a, a, a paralleling together of the roles of the three persons of God. That as Jesus has said, I am the truth, so here is the spirit truth because he is the spirit of Jesus. He is not Jesus He's an independent person of the Trinity, but he perfectly mirrors the words and work of the Father and the words and work of the Son. So what does Jesus tell us about the Spirit, our helper? He's the Spirit of truth, verses 14, sorry, 14, 17a. This appears to be the primary work of the Holy Spirit in the church as Jesus describes it. And everything else he does flows from this. He is the spirit of truth, the spirit, the one who bears witness to the truth that Christ has spoken to the church down through the ages, to individual Christians and to others who will come. It is the spirit who opens the words of Jesus to us and through the church then to the world. The themes you will notice here in that light are love, Verse 15a, and the commandments of God, the law, verse 15b, the things that the Spirit will teach us about from the Son. Today you'll find people who will claim quite happily that Jesus never claimed to be God. But back in the day, back in Jesus' day, there appears to have been no hesitation at all among those who supported him or those who opposed him as to what his claim was. And you can see it here as he speaks, can't you? Does Jesus talk here about loving God as if God were another person? No, he talks about loving himself. If you love me. And does he talk here about obeying the law of Moses as given to Moses by God the Father? No, he talks about obeying his word, his law. That insight has stayed with me and it's really quite breathtaking that Jesus is making the claim clearly that he is God. And this is the work of the Spirit of God to draw attention to the truth of the matter 
that Jesus is God, the Word of God. And the words he has spoken to them are the words that the Spirit will speak to us. He will teach you all things we read and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's appropriate, I think, regularly to remind ourselves that ours is an apostolic faith, that the revelation was given to the apostles, and they, in turn, wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God gave them remembrance of the words that Jesus had spoken in their hearing, and then they passed it on to us. So this particular promise, we shouldn't be shy about saying this, verse 26, was given to them. Jesus spoke it to them that night. Now, in a secondary way, I think we can say it is applicable to us, people who have received the apostles' words after them, and the Spirit will remind us of those words to encourage us. That doesn't make them any less the words of Jesus, but we recommend, but we uh, realize and remember that those words were spoken first to them. And it's extraordinary. No one, I think, could have ever imagined such a scenario that the Creator, that the Lawgiver would come to His people, come to their side as their helper, that the Creator, this was His design, that we should not be helped simply by each other, but by God Himself next to us, to speak His words to us, His words of truth, because those words are to us food and life. After all, who is it that convinces people that Jesus and the words of the Bible are true? I heard someone um, was speaking, a Christian apologist, and a young man in the audience afterwards, uh, an intelligent young man who had been listening, a student, came to him and said, what you are saying sounds true, but it doesn't seem real. I thought it was a significant way to put it, because that is the role of the Spirit, not simply to confirm to us that something might be true, as if, as if we could say logically this makes sense, or to say that the, the God of the Bible is simply a, a, a bundle of doctrines, or some lifeless uh, eminence of, of orthodoxy. No, here is the reality of the truth of God. Certainly true and consistent in the Word of God, but the Word personally applied to us in the presence of God so that He's real and the person who, who meets Him says, you're alive, you're real. I read a story about a youth group leader who was taking his group around a waxwork museum. This, this actually happened. He stopped for a time. He was alone at this point and he stopped for a time in the relative gloom of that part of the museum and as he was uh, standing there for a moment, uh, he noticed that a little group of people who had come into the room had gathered around him and were looking uh, to see the little sign which would tell them what wax work he was supposed to be. So he stayed stock still, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, playing the joke, uh, he deliberately sneezed, and they fell back in surprise. I love that, that that's the way that C.S. Lewis describes the work of the spirits to us. That we hadn't actually intended that we should find God, but this is God. He reveals himself suddenly to us as someone alive, someone not far away, but someone present 
in a sense, awesomely, astonishingly, uncomfortably present. And he says, I am here speaking to you the words of truth. So here is the spirit of truth. He doesn't simply confirm or authorize doctrine. He reveals to us that he is alive and speaking to us the truth of Christ. Third heading, our assurance of home. This is the assurance to us that the Spirit represents our home, not simply in the world to come, which of course he is, he is the seal of that, but also here and now he is our assurance that he has made his home with us. So verse 17b, the Spirit of truth, Jesus said, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It's striking, isn't it, that Jesus, the night before he dies, one of the last things he says in the sequence of events, the night before the cross, tells his disciples about the Holy Spirit. And he tells them, he dwells with you. And I think that's true, it, obviously it's true, but it was true in the sense that because Christ was with them, and because Christ had always had the Holy Spirit with him, not only in his ministry since his baptism, but probably from the very beginning, the Spirit with him. So it was appropriate and right for him to say, the Spirit dwells with you, because Jesus had dwelt with them. And it explains a number of things that happen in the uh, work of the Gospels, which we won't go into now, but where clearly the Holy Spirit was also at work there. But then Jesus says, this spirit who dwells with you will be in you. And it's this dwelling idea, he, he will dwell in you, that is the power and the hope of the Christian. It's this image of home that he should be so precious to us as someone who has made his home with us. If anyone loves me, Jesus said, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. And that's the experience of so many of us in this room that quite unexpectedly by us, God has come and has made his home with us. And the thing to notice here, of course, is the permanence of it. He will be with you forever. This was the great hope of the prophets, and of the priests and of the kings of the Old Testament, that God's Spirit would not be taken from them. He was present, he was given, he would fall upon them for certain times and purposes, but he would then often leave. But Jesus, in the light of that, says, I will not leave you as orphans. And it brings the inevitable question, doesn't it? How can a holy God, a God without shadow of darkness, make his home permanently in the lives of people who have been so sinful? This was David's great anxiety. This was his concern in Psalm 51. After the whole thing with Bathsheba and, and the murder, which he played a significant role in, the murder of her husband. And his prayer is, cast me not away from your presence Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because he knew what he'd done. And he knew that God could not abide to be in such a place with him. And so his earnest prayer is that God would not leave him. 
And this is the assurance that we have, that when we come to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we come to someone who will not be taken from us because of our sin. It's a great comfort to us that we can speak and know because Christ has paid the penalty for that sin and has removed the need for the Holy Spirit to be taken from us under such conditions. So where Jesus here speaks, notice of obedience and genuine love and the assurance of God making his home with us through Christ, he does so in that context. When it comes to obedience and of love, and of course we obey for different reasons now than we had done, I suppose, out of fear previously, or of trying to get something from God, or trying to earn something from God. Now, because of Christ, it's out of gratitude, out of loyalty, out of great love for what Christ has done for us. And it's the Spirit stirring up those things in us. And God says in Deuteronomy 5 and 12, to us also, be careful to obey all that I have commanded you. And Jesus as Lord is saying no less here. That can seem overwhelming when you read this text. There's so much here of obedience, so much here of love, and you may perhaps, even on your best days, not feel equal to it. Of course, it's impossible for us to do these things without the hope of the gospel and without the indwelling of the Spirit within us. Practically, though, this is the way I deal with it. I find when I come to such a passage, I can't deal with all the things that God may have asked me to do, but I can at least deal with the things that I may be looking at in a particular passage of the Bible that I'm reading for that day. I can ask that the Holy Spirit would bring these things to mind. I can look here in a passage like John 15 for God's particular commands and for God's particular promises and ask that the Spirit remind me of both during the day. What is here for you to trust God in? What is it here that is the Spirit's word to you that you should obey him in this particular thing to do, in the good work that he has laid up for you to do? What's the promise that he's going to call you to remember as you do so? The promise indeed that you are an adopted son or daughter of the King of Kings. And if you should lose your way, as we often do, and the devil or your own heart should accuse you, what encouragement will you find here? Well, I'm reminded about two precious truths in this passage you may have to do a little bit of digging for, but they are here. On the one hand, notice Jesus is telling these men to love and obey all of them all of them without exception, before he has finished even his paragraph, are going to let him down. Do you notice this? Verse 28, if you love me, you would have rejoiced. And yet I think we can assume that none of them were rejoicing at the news that he had brought them. And on the other hand, with the coming of the Spirit, all of that has changed. Some, if some of these verses trouble you and your conscience in the way that you and I will fall short in them, notice Jesus appears to say the same thing about obedience and love deliberately in two different ways twice. So verse 21, and I take the word order here to be important, and also in verse 23. 
verse 21, whoever keeps my word, he it is that loves me. And second, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. As a matter of encouragement to the downtrodden and to the despondent, to those who think that they will never be able to obey, he will keep my word. Similarly, in verse 15, it's all about where you place the emphasis. Jesus tells again these frightened and confused men, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. As frightened, as confused as you are tonight, my brothers, he's saying, you will keep my commandments. You will. Jesus was going to pay the penalty for them, and in the light of that, penalty paid at the cross. In the resurrection, they were adopted as sons, and the Spirit at work in them would encourage them that they would obey him. So 2 Corinthians 1, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. God's Holy Spirit. So I think it's healthy for the Christian to regularly remember that the Spirit has made his home in us. And it is the Spirit who stirs in us and awakens us to kind of stock take at where we are. So this is the kind of question that the Holy Spirit will ask us. And it's a hopeful thing. You may find yourself, having looked at a passage of Scripture, you say you love Jesus... But are you seeking to obey him in this thing today? Is this a real thing for you? Are you going to obey him today in this and love him and take steps to make sure that's so, to look to him, to encourage you with his promises, perhaps to put hedge around some particular besetting sin, to be accountable, to be careful to read, to be careful to ask him for his help as you go in through this day. We are to be careful about these things, aren't we? But it's also an opportunity to preach the gospel to yourself, to remind yourself when it comes to the call of obedience, this one who has given everything for me, who has deserved none of it, am I going to be the king of my life today, or will I submit to his lordship and his necessary and life-giving help? Lord, I cannot breathe without you, let alone keep your commandments. Help me today to remember that you are at work in me and that you want to do, even through me, something that will please you and glorify you. You are my home. You are my closest friend. You are my only country now. So the Spirit is our assurance of home. And finally, bear with me, he is our peace in the world. You know, I remember 30 years ago going with my wife to interview. This was right after seminary. We went to a very large European mission agency to ask them about work in the UK and was told, uh, no, we haven't got anything there, no. We think we had something in Scotland some years ago, but no. And when we pressed them and said, well, why? Well, they said, it's a Christian country. The church is strong there, and its missionary message is not needed. Absolutely extraordinary. 
and extraordinary not only because I know the dark mills of that particular land, but because what a difference 30 years will make. The darkness now has come into the open. I think it was always there, but beneath a veneer, perhaps, of conformity to the Christian faith, 10 years later, right, the same lands that had produced Jesus Christ Superstar and an obsession with things that were born again. If you've seen the recent movie about the work in the 70s of Calvary Chapel, you will know the great work, I think, that God did and how that started to kind of produce a revival of sorts within the culture. Well, in the early 2000s, we started seeing bumper stickers, Jesus lied to you. And I think over the last 20 years, it's become more obvious, hasn't it? The defiance, the sense not simply of an active hostility in the world, but a conviction of moral superiority that the world has over the Christian church. And I think it's brought us to something actually quite similar to what the disciples faced in the first century. And we've asked ourselves, haven't we, what will break through that? What will win over the world? Will our celebrity conversions do so? Will our wholesome family appeal bring people to Christ? Or our sound and light shows with dry ice? Or our good works and our good causes? We can say that we're about the same kind of issues of justice as well. Or will our concessions to the world by degree on these points of moral disagreement really biblical disagreement win us back their popularity. We've tried all of those things and the answer to all the above is no. The world remains the world and it will be so and Jesus sends the church into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says here, peace I leave with you and he's speaking to the church, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Why is it peace and not victory or defense or some kind of force field around us or some kind of uh, carte blanche permission to be uh, living on another planet or at least in some monastery somewhere and never having to deal with the world? It's because, verse 17, the world cannot receive the Spirit, but we are to go in the power of the Spirit with the words of Jesus to the world. We read in 16.8, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And it begs the question, how will he do so? Will he do that automatically? Will he, will he bring in perhaps somebody like Balaam's donkey to do it for him? Well, perhaps he has, but that's you and me. Jesus will speak through his church. I was excited to hear Woody uh, talk about the sinking of these wells in these remote parts of India because it's such an excellent gospel image, an association as those churches are planted and as the gospels are preached. The water that I will give you, Jesus says, will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But how will people know about that water, that life-giving water? Well, Pastor Kumar will be there to preach to them the words of Jesus and the Spirit will take those words and bring life to many. So as we look at this final picture here 
of the peace promised to the church by the Spirit. Why is it necessary? Well, because of the opposition of the world and because we need his peace. We need his encouragement. We need to know that he is going with us as we go into the world by the Spirit. So as we close, how should you pray for the Spirit to do his work, even here? In closing, I would suggest you pray for two things. First, that you should pray to God for your own soul, that God would open your eyes to see the reality of Jesus Christ. You know, someone has compared faith to looking from outside a church through stained glass windows. This is particularly true in old Victorian churches. From outside, it will look as if it's just an in dark and impenetrable barrier, not a window at all, almost a wall. But when you go inside, perhaps into that darkened church, as the, wind, as the window allows the light to pour through, you will see the vibrancy of the colors and of the light showing the work depicted there, perhaps, of the gospel. And it's wholly appropriate then for us to ask God by his spirit to open our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. And we often say this, and I know it's absolutely true. It's been, it's been true in history that people who regularly go to church are sometimes converted even in their own pulpits as they're preaching because suddenly the Spirit of God will open their eyes and they will realize this is not a game, it is not a ritual, but we are dealing with someone who is actually there. So there is a place for us to preach the gospel to ourselves, but to ask, Lord, would you open my eyes to the reality of who you are? And perhaps not for the first time, you too will need that after years perhaps of some dryness in your life. And second, I think you should pray for the preaching here. A 19th century Scottish preacher, a man called Alexander White, used to say, unless your minister makes you tremble every Sabbath under the eye and hand of God, he is not a true minister to you. Makes me remember, I was telling the congregation at 8.30, I think it was... Ten years ago, I had a, there was a spate of visitors who would come and say, the Spirit is clearly at work here. And um, I told the congregation, I don't think I've heard that in ten years. So a visitor came up to me after the 8.30 service and said, the Holy Spirit was at work here this morning. <laughs> but I don't think Mr. White was talking about a style as if everyone who preaches here should invoke their inner Jonathan Edwards. He wasn't talking about human gifting or, or human effort at all. He was praying, wasn't he? He was speaking that the church should pray that the Spirit should come. The unction of the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit. And again, not just on a preacher, but upon all of us, that as we come to hear the words of God, we would come expecting an encounter with the Holy Spirit. We would come hearing and expecting to hear those words that are life and truth and food to us that the church would be stirred by what she needs. Not simply a ritual getting together, not even an education as Presbyterians love, but rather the Holy Ghost anointing upon the church so that even the person who comes from outside who has known nothing of Christ will hear Christ speaking to them through his Spirit 
on a Sunday morning. And we say that because without the preaching of the gospel and the illuminating conviction of the Holy Spirit, there can be no peace with God. But this is our encouragement on good days and less good days. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He is our helper, this Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that the Holy Spirit of God is not someone who promotes himself. Rather, he gives glory to the Son and gives glory to the Father. But Lord, if it's permissible, we want to pray that he would work among us, glorifying the Son and the Father's work. Lord, would you be present to us, Lord Holy Spirit? Would you make yourself known to us and real to us? Through this, the words of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.